Good morning. I wonder if you've ever gone to a, a concert or wanted maybe to go to a concert, to a live music event. Perhaps a, a band that you have loved and followed all your life is coming to town, coming to Belfast, and you're eagerly waiting for the tickets to go on sale, and you log on to Ticketmaster the morning they go on sale or wherever it is that you're going to get the tickets, and your jaw drops at the price of them, and you think, oh my goodness, that is just way too high. I've already got all of their albums, can already listen to all of their music. There's no way I'm paying that much just to go and hear them in person. The price of admission is just too much for me. And this morning, as we continue in Luke's gospel, we're going to meet a rich young man who is very keen for admission to the kingdom of God. But when he gets down to the details, and when he speaks to Jesus, he realizes that the price of admission is too high for him. So let's come to Luke's gospel, chapter 18, and we're going to break in at verse 17. And feel free to read along in the Pew Bibles or on your phone, whatever you have with you. Luke 18 and verse 17. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And a ruler said to him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I've kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. And taking the twelve, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. So here we have this young man, we're told, this rich young man who comes and meets Jesus and asks him this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
It's nearly exactly the same question as the lawyer asked Jesus back in chapter 10. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And it's, it's interesting. This young man would have, was, was wealthy, so we're told that. He's extremely wealthy. We learn that. But he's also a ruler. And probably we take from that that he would have been what you'd call a civil ruler rather than a religious ruler like the Pharisees, someone who had a, a prominent position in the town or in the city, someone who was well thought of with a responsible role. And he comes to Jesus and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? But it's interesting, the first thing Jesus does is react actually, doesn't he? He reacts to how the young man has greeted him. The young man has greeted him with the words, good teacher. And Jesus says, why do you call me good? Why are you calling me good? There's obviously something in that that has triggered a reaction in the Lord. And I think the Lord in that is challenging this young man directly, right at the outset, to cut through social pleasantries or flattery or whatever it was in that greeting and to say, you must make the connection between what I'm doing and God. You must make the connection between what I am doing and God. There is none good but God. And you might be sitting here this morning and be perfectly happy to think about Jesus as a good teacher. You might be perfectly content to keep him in that box, to see him, yep, good teacher. We see that Jesus is not happy to accept that label. He wants to push us further in recognizing who he is and what he is doing and its connection with God. He, he demands that this young man see his ministry in the context of the divine. And then he gets into answering his question. He starts to list off some of the commandments. And he lists them off, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, honor your father and mother. And the young man is really quick to affirm that he's done all of those. He's done them all. I've done that all from my youth. It's, it's, it's like he's saying, well, if, the, if that's the tick list, if that's all that's needed, I'm in good shape. I've done all of that. And then Jesus says to him, well, one thing you lack. But actually, when we see what the Lord tells him to do, he's really telling him one thing you're still holding on to. One thing you're still clinging on to. Sell all of that you have, sell all of those riches, give them to the poor, have treasure in heaven, and then having left all of that, come and follow me. So what was he lacking? What was this young man lacking? Well, it has to be dependence, ultimately, doesn't it? Dependence on God, a total commitment to Jesus. Jesus was looking for him to completely walk away from that life and security. Didn't want this young man to be holding something in reserve in his life, keeping something buried deep down in his heart that would keep him from a full-throated commitment, a full-life commitment to following Jesus. So he lacked that. And Jesus challenges him. He says, that has to go, and then come and follow me. I wonder, is there a greater commitment than Jesus in your heart this morning? Maybe you've been coming here for a while, 
family member of people who come here, guest of people who've come here. You've just found us, and you've been coming for a while and sitting and listening to things and thinking about following Jesus, but deep in your heart, there's a greater love. You worry about what becoming a disciple of Jesus would really mean for you, what it would mean for your treasured lifestyle, or maybe some treasured relationships in your life that you know will have to go or your treasured social position, what would my friends think? Or your treasured treasure, what would this mean for all of the things I have? Jesus cuts through that, and He says, sell it all. That all has to go. No hidden love if you're going to follow Me. Get rid of all of that, and come and follow Me. But as we see down in verse 23, he doesn't do it, does he? Because when he heard these things, he became very sad because he was extremely rich. Notice how the modifiers highlight that. The emotion follows the money, doesn't it? Very sad because he was extremely rich. He couldn't let go of it and follow Jesus. And in that, he is really a perfect illustration of the Lord's parable of the sower that he told us back in chapter 8 in Luke. So, he talks about the seed that falls among thorns. And when he's explaining that to the disciples, he says, as for what fell among thorns, they are those who hear, but they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. With that one command, Jesus has cut right to the core of what was most important for this young man. Someone said, those words of the Lord fell on hearing ears, but a deaf heart. This young man wandered into the concert, so to speak, but when it came to it, the price of admission for him was too high. Just a little bit later on in this chapter, if we read, we would meet another man who encounters Jesus, this time a beggar at the side of the road, the complete opposite, a man who struggled day to day, begging for a few coins from those who passed by, hoping that he would get enough to buy some bread to keep his life going for the next day and the next day. And he hears a commotion, and he asks what it is, and he's told it's Jesus passing by, and he cries out, Son of David, have mercy on me. He knows the desperation of his situation. But wealth and comfort have a blinding effect on a human. And so as that rich young man turns and walks away, Jesus turns and says to those around him those arresting words, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. What makes it difficult? What makes it difficult to turn away from wealth and follow Jesus? Well, reflecting on it, there are probably three things we like wealth for. The first one is pleasure. I remember when I was little and I sat in... in church and listen to preachers, preachers would say, you know, money won't buy you happiness. I have to be honest, if you gave me a million pounds tomorrow, I think I could have a lot of fun with it. 
wouldn't be lasting fun. wouldn't be joy, and that's for another sermon another day, maybe. But the reality is that money can bring a great degree of comfort, a great degree of enjoyment, a lifestyle that's really enjoyable for us. This rich young man can have whatever food he wants, whatever clothing he wants, whatever accommodation he wants, whatever company he wants, whatever pleasures he decides he wants, he can have it. Is he really going to leave all of that behind to follow this rabbi with dusty feet, disliked by the religious establishment and followed by this rough band of fishermen? Who would do it? Who would do it? Who would turn their back on all of that enjoyment and pleasure to follow Jesus? And if it's not pleasure, perhaps it's security. You might say, well, I would take that million pounds, Nicholas, and I'd just put it in the bank, and I'd go on and live my life and carry on as normal, but I'm safe now. Never have to worry about getting fired again. Never have to get worried about getting written out of that will again. Never have to worry about needing that expensive surgery someday or my house burning down or whatever it is. I'm secure now. My wealth has brought me safety. It has brought me security. Now, that's not how it works, and we all know that. Children get sick with illnesses that no amount of money can cure. Loved ones die. Partners leave, and no amount of money in the bank will bring them back. But often that's how we view wealth, isn't it? It's our security. We're safe. We're safe because we've got the insurance policy, or we've finished paying off the mortgage, or whatever it is. Are you really asking me to forsake that security and to put all of my chips in you, Lord? Is that what you're asking? Let go of that security that I treasure so dearly and follow you. Wealth gives us pleasure. Wealth gives us security. And for some people, wealth is a big part of their self-worth. It's, it's not about the money. The money is just a way of keeping score. This is all that I've accomplished in my life. This is what I've done. This is who I am. This is the record, essentially, of what I've achieved with my life. So either because his riches were his main joy in his life, or because his riches were his main security in life, or because they were the defining characteristic of who he was, Jesus tells this young man, you've got to let them go and follow me. Because ultimately, the life of discipleship that we have been learning about in this section of Luke as we journey to Jerusalem is one where Jesus must be our joy, where Jesus must be our security, where Jesus must be the defining thing of our lives. We saw this with Mary and Martha, didn't we? Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing, me, is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Mary had found her joy sitting at the feet of Jesus. Jesus says to his disciples, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you eat, what, what you put on your body, what you will put on. Jesus wanted his disciples to find their security in him. If God clothes the grass, he said, how much more will he clothe you? Let's make no bones about this this morning. Most of us here are much closer to this young man than we are to the blind beggar. Not all of us, but most of us here 
are much closer to this rich young man in our lives. And so we must guard our hearts against those dangers as well. That the blessings of God and the good things that we have in life do not become our central joy, do not become where we find our security, do not become where we find our self-worth. Think of Moses. Hebrews tells us would rather be mistreated with the people of God than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin because he considered the reproach of Christ greater than all the treasure of Egypt because he was looking for the reward. I'll tell you about a young man called Dixon. Dixon was born into a wealthy family, into a, a stable and a loving home, and had a very successful father, and had, by all accounts, a loving and a caring mother. Uh, and uh, it, it, he, he was born in England, and the family lived in England, and he went to one of the best public schools in England. And he went on from there to the Royal Military Academy. And then he got a commission in the Royal Artillery. And this was at a time whenever a commission in the army opened the doors to the highest echelons of society. He had everything going for him. Family background, wealth, great career ahead of him. But one night, at his brother's urging, he came and he sat in the back of an American revival meeting in England. And in that meeting, he felt the call of Jesus Christ on his life. And he left it all behind him. Dixon Host went on to join six other young men from equally wealthy and privileged backgrounds, all who turned their backs on it all and followed Jesus Christ. They became known as the Cambridge Seven. Seven young men who joined what at that time was the China Inland Mission and walked away from that life of privilege that they had to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to the people of China. It's easy for us to stand in judgment over this rich young man. But how would I feel if the Lord turned to me and said, sell the house, leave the job, leave the country. You're going to have to travel away from your family for a long period of time. How might we feel walking away from that security, from all of those things that we love? How would any of us who are parents perhaps feel if our children came to us and told us that they felt God calling them to full-time service? Would we seek the Lord's face and will in prayer and fasting with them? Or might we find ourselves almost on reflex saying, well, just stick to your studies, just finish the degree, just get on a little bit further in your job, just make sure you have something to fall back on. The Lord says, sell it all. And at the very least in our hearts, he asks each of us the same thing, let it go and follow me the difficulty in entering the kingdom of God. 
And then he goes on to talk to the disciples about the reward of sacrificing for the kingdom of God. Because the disciples ask this question. The Lord says how difficult it is for the rich to get in. And the disciples say, well, who, who can get in then? As if to say, like, if the rich can't do it with everything they've got going for them, how are we going to do it? How is anyone going to do it? And Jesus says, well, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And we'll come back to that thought. And that then leads to this comment from Peter when he says, well, see, we have left our homes and followed you. Now, you might be tempted in that moment to say, pipe down, Peter. This isn't about you. This isn't about all that you've done. But actually, the Lord doesn't do that. The Lord uses that as a moment instead to teach his disciples. The Lord says, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers, or parents, or children, for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time, and in the age to come, eternal life. So, let's think about that for a little minute. It's important to say, by the way, the the verb here is leaving, not being left. So, the idea here is of a regretted parting, someone who's had to leave their wife in service of the kingdom for a period of time. It's not advocating abandonment. Someone who's had to leave their family or leave the security of a secure job or a secure position. And that's been a difficult thing for them to do, but Jesus says anyone who does that will receive a reward in this life and the life to come. So, what is the reward for sacrificing for the kingdom of God? Well, there's reward in this life, and there's reward in the age to come, Jesus tells us. The reward in this life, I think, first of all, we might say it's a joyful orientation or reorientation of our lives. Jesus has said to his disciples in chapter 12 in Luke, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And we all know that intrinsically is true in our lives. What we spend most of our time thinking about is what we treasure the most. And so, giving for the kingdom of God, sacrificing for the kingdom of God, pulls our hearts to where they should be, away from this world around us, and instead in heaven. Sacrificing for the kingdom of God keeps our hearts focused on the kingdom of God. It forces us to commit in a real way to the reality that this life is not all there is. It forces us to do that. It forces us not to hedge our bets. To say, well, I'll hold on to the money until I die, and then I'll be in heaven, and then the kids can do what they want with it. It forces us to say, I am investing this money now at a cost now for a gain in eternity. And in doing that, it pulls our hearts away from this world around us and locates them in the kingdom of God. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And there's a joy in that, actually. There's a great joy in giving and sacrificing for the Lord. It's not something we talk about that much, but it is there. There is a joy in joyfully obeying and sacrificing for the Lord. Paul writes to the Corinthians, and he says, we want you to know about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part 
for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. So, sacrificing for the kingdom of God brings a joyful reorientation of our hearts. It forces us to put our treasure in heaven and pulls our hearts there as well. We also get a reward in this life that you might say was a greater inheritance, because although we might be parted from our family or from our home, we have been placed in a family immeasurably larger than any natural one that we could have come from. We will find brothers and sisters in almost any large city on earth today. God has given us many, many times more in terms of family and homes and loved ones and care. Stevie was challenging us a few weeks ago from Luke. What are we doing this Christmas? Who are we welcoming into our homes? I think we are very privileged here in this church to have brothers and sisters from other parts of the world who come and fellowship with us for a time, sometimes short and sometimes long. Let's be stirred up to show them true Christian hospitality. Let's welcome them. Let's show them that family love that the Lord promises them here. So there's a reward in this life, a joyful reorientation, a greater inheritance. And then there's a reward as well, isn't there, in the age to come. Jesus says in the age to come there will be eternal life. Because the ultimate reward for leaving the trinkets of this passing world to follow Jesus is that that journey leads to eternal life. When He became the first love of our hearts, and when we come to Him in faith and ask for forgiveness and give Him our lives and commit to following Him, that starts you on a journey that leads you to eternal life in the age to come. So there's a reward in this life and a reward in the age to come. And one last reward in the age to come that's worth us thinking about as well. When we look at the instruction that the Lord gave to that rich young man, he wasn't really telling him to get rid of anything, was he? He was suggesting he partake in what you might call an asset transfer. Sell all you have and give it to the poor here, because then you will what? Have treasure in heaven. Have treasure in heaven. And often that's something we shy away from talking about, because we think it seems slightly unspiritual to want to build up for ourselves treasure in heaven. That's not how the Lord Jesus talks about it. Repeatedly, He stirs up His disciples to do that. Tells them in chapter 12 of Luke, provide yourselves with money bags in heaven. That's what He says. It's not that our ambition in itself is a bad thing necessarily, but where our ambitions are located is the issue. Jesus is calling us to exchange an ambition for lesser things in this world for greater eternal things in the world to come. Jesus wants us to invest in a way that will get us a reward in heaven. He challenges us to exchange our ambition for the lesser passing things of this world for the greater eternal treasure, where rust will not corrupt and moths will not destroy. 
And there's a, an application there to my generation and, and those younger, the millennials and Gen Z here. And that is for us to commit to giving of our time, but of our money to the Lord. Someone told me when I started working, get into the habit of saving a little bit of your salary every month. You won't miss it, and then it'll just be building up slowly. Well, what a much better piece of advice would be as well would be to get into the habit of giving a portion of your salary to the Lord every month, because that is building up in savings as well for us, heavenly savings in the age to come. And for some of us, that may have implications, implications on what sort of a house we buy, how big a mortgage we can afford, what car we buy, what sort of a lifestyle we have. But Jesus says, don't invest your money and time in the passing things of this world, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. So that is it. The difficulty of entering the kingdom of God and the reward for sacrificing for the kingdom of God. As we close, I just want us to read the last section of that reading again from verse 31. As we think about the high cost of entry into the kingdom of God. And telling the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked, and shamefully treated, and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. But we grasp it, don't we? We understand it with the benefit of hindsight. Who then can be saved, the disciples said? Well, the short implied answer is nobody. But what is impossible with man is possible with God. Because for any of us to enter the kingdom of God, it required a great sacrifice on the part of the king. Because the problem of sin in each of our lives made us unfit for that kingdom. And so to deal with that problem, the king himself, the son of man, had to be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon and after flogging to be killed and on the third day to rise. See, the ultimate reason that it was so critical that the rich young man turn his back on his wealth is that the way into the kingdom of God is to cast all of our hope utterly and completely on the king. Not to have a spare parachute in our bank account, but rather to find ourselves like the blind beggar crying out, Son of David, have mercy on me. And so to do that this morning, you might think about saying to God, sorry, thank you, and please. Sorry for living my life my way, for myself, by my rules, and ignoring you, ignoring your standards. Thank you for your death on the cross, for being shamefully treated and flogged and dying for me, for paying the penalty that was owed for the things that I have done wrong in my life, and please forgive me 
for those things. And please take over my life as my Savior and my Lord. I gladly hand over the reins of my life to you. The difficulty of entering the kingdom of God, the reward for sacrificing the kingdom of God, and the high cost for each of us for entering the kingdom of God. May the king himself help us to reflect on these things this morning.